0: 上
1: I'm Rebecca Satterwhite, and you're listening to the Grox Science Show from WHPK 88.5 FM, Pride of the South Side. Grox is a word that means to perceive something so profoundly well that you understand it on an intuitive level. The word was coined by Robert A. Heinlein in the 1961 science fiction novel, Stranger in a Strange Land. The Grok Science Show was founded in 2002 by members of the Biological Sciences Division here at the University of Chicago. Today, the show is still student run and broadcasts out of the WHPK studios and a 100-year-old Bell Tower. It's the 25th of July, 2019, and this is my 14th episode. Yay!
0: me, I can't do my homework and I can't see straight. I'm eating every morning, got a happy day. I'm acting like a love sick flu. You even got me carrying his books to school. Hey, hey, set me free. Stupid people, stop picking on me.
1: Hello, thank you for listening to the Grock Science Show. I have a guest today.
2: Hey, everyone.
1: What's your name?
2: I'm Nick. Nick Varley, the former station manager, current just guy hanging around here at WHPK.
1: This guy was here in the studios, and now we're going to play a game that I made up called Fake Title, Real Title. Nick, are you a scientist?
2: <laughs> Absolutely not.
1: Are you aware of scientific publications? Yeah, Okay, great. I'm going to give you one, and you tell me if it's real or fake-sounding to you.
2: Just for the record, I did not know this was happening until Rebecca began that sentence 30 it's seconds true. ago.
1: It's true. This guy was just hanging out in the studio. Children and mini-magnets, colon, an almost fatal attraction.
2: Children and mini-magnets. Mm-hmm. I'm...
1: Do you want to sit on that, and I can give you a second one?
2: Well, can I get any any context for like what the publication is about?
1: I think it's about children.
2: Well, are they swallowing the magnets? It's unclear to me what's happening. What's going on? I
1: would imagine, though, that they're swallowable, because otherwise, what's the problem?
2: Right, right, right. What's the
1: fatal attraction?
2: Right, well, then I'm going to go fake. I think kids and magnets are are fine.
1: Okay. I'm just going to take a note. I'm sorry, that was, that's a totally true publication Oh, title. that was real? I don't have any information other than the truth of it. Okay, are Damn. you ready for number two? Wait, okay,
2: so we just know that it's, it's real. Yes. <laughs> God bless. All right, cool. That's from an
1: article on article titles.
2: Can't wait to wonder what that was for the rest of my life.
1: I hope it really haunts you. Uh, number two, the genetics of germs transmitted by human handshakes.
2: The genetics of germs. Uh, I'm I'm gonna go real.
1: I'm so sorry. You're very um, gullible.
2: That was fake.
1: Yeah, I studied the genetics of germs, so I thought I would like throw it in there.
2: Right. Well, I thought that was like one yeah, of your that was things. Yeah, it's a clue. It's like, not. Had...
1: <laughs> also, human handshakes.
2: Well, I feel like someone's got to be studying that, right? Possibly. I mean, I would I would fund that if I were a. Well, we've got to get you a new job. The as NSF.
1: A... <laughs> yeah clearly very important research number three crazy like a fox colon validity and ethics of animal models of human psychiatric disease it well, may seem insensitive
2: i i hope that's real because that sounds really interesting
1: it's real good job Woo!
2: <sighs> all right
1: one and <laughs> one and three. two
2: i'm batting at 33 <laughs> percent.
1: okay number uh, four are you ready absolutely Green eggs and ham, colon, the most important meal of the day in the age of genetically modified organisms.
2: That's, this is an aside. I don't like when scientists, you know, try to be clever oh. with the titles. <laughs> oh you my know, God, excuse not, me. That's not what we're, what we're paying you for. But
1: most you know. of what we do is so boring. You don't want us to have any fun? You don't like it because you feel like it's unprofessional?
2: Well, I mean, if you're a, you're a big deal research professor, you've already got...
1: If you're a professor, you're, you're
2: tenure, you're doing your publications, you have your cadre of undergraduates, you know, you you're don't saying, have to, get boring with it. You don't have to prove that you're funny to just you're great at science. Do that.
1: No, but if you have a list of like 100 paper titles and you have one that has some silly twist in the beginning that sticks out, I feel like it gives you an advantage.
2: Yeah, but then you're just you're masking bad science with with paltry, you know. OK,
1: all right. Jokes. Let's hold your personal judgments <sighs> until we get a true or a false on this green eggs and handpaper.
2: You know, I had a chemistry professor once who uh, when she gave us handouts, everything would always start with the letter E, like all the headings. And she said, I just want to prove that I'm smart, <laughs> that I can make a really good chemistry handout that shows you all the information about like hydroxyl groups or whatever but also everything starts with e
1: whoa that's indicative of something deeper going on <laughs> that's with true. that well, person that's, that's
2: how i feel when i see these <laughs> extremely clever paper titles about, okay
1: so what you're saying uh, is you were traumatized by a, a
2: weird that's true science educator. Right. yeah that's why <laughs> that's why i left and got into that
1: is so bizarre radio i mean do you think in hindsight as a semi-grown up do you think that that person had like an OCD hangup to to spend the time doing that?
2: Oh, I don't know. I think they were they were a very brilliant professor, and I think they were okay. just
1: just eccentric.
2: Just their brain was always looking for something to okay. solve as a problem. Anyways, uh, sorry, I'm totally um, yeah. Valued, I, value value judgments derailed, aside, derailed this entire uh, please do. study that we're conducting right now. <laughs>
1: this is actually not a study. <laughs> Good news, this, sake, this I... is just this is just screwing around on the radio. No,
2: I believe that. Uh, You've brought me in for some kind of psychological experiment.
1: It's possible. You don't really know what I do here.
2: That's true. Hey, I I listen to the Grok Science Show uh, (laughs) as I listen to all other programs on WHPK.
1: The fine, fine programming. It is pretty good, actually. So, Green Eggs and Ham, colon, the most important meal of the day in the age of genetically modified organisms. Fake title or real title, Nick Varley.
2: I'm going to go fake title because I hope it's fake.
1: You nailed it. I made that one up. So you've gotten, like, I think two of four, correct? Two I've, out of four. Yeah, two more for you.
2: That's still better than I did in that chemistry class <laughs> so far.
1: Chemistry is hard. It's a difficult one. I also sucked really bad at high school chemistry and then college chemistry until I finally had a really good teacher, and it made all the difference. Oh. Okay, fake title, real title. Friends with Benefits, colon, on the Positive Consequences of Pet Ownership.
2: Hmm. Real.
1: Yes. Go so with your instincts on that. You are correct.
2: Nice. I'm glad. I'm glad someone's doing that work.
1: It, pretty interesting. What I can speak to with regards to that is just that the more evidence of relationships, like the relationships that people have, they don't have to be impactful relationships. They don't have to be long-term, but people enjoy people even if they think that they don't. Really? So it seems like that's kind of what they're getting at is just being around another living organism all the time it kind of makes you happier living organism wow. and so those stupid like conversations i say stupid the conversations people will have with like the grocery store clerk or the person who works at the mail box the mail <laughs> what am i thinking post office the post the office who, people
2: who works at the mailbox. <laughs> there's a little guy in there <laughs>
1: there's a little guy in there and there's a little guy here in the studio oh boy and <laughs> dogs are uh, beneficial Pets rather are beneficial. okay, I have one more
2: Well actually, can we can we discuss this paper I haven't read <laughs> just a little bit more? Sure because what I what I hear all the time because I, I used to collect uh, tropical fish and people okay. always say, like why would you ever have a pet that can't love you and will like not return affection mm-hmm. like in a manner similar to like the affection that you're giving the pet? I'm sorry, how s- are
1: you being affectionate with this fish? Well, you, you, you know, you love your fish. Sure. Like, you're
2: you're sad if the fish, you know, Expires. is sick. Yeah, definitely. I've cried over a fish. <laughs> I'll admit it. Uh, so, I, I mean, it's interesting. If these relationships that seem to not matter at all actually count in the human realm, does, like, your alligator yeah. give you an emotional benefit, even if it's not, chance the snapper know, like, it's nuzzling up?
1: Are we all positively affected by having Chance the Snapper be in the Homeboat Park Lagoon, part of our lives, coming in with his baby crocodile face, alligator.
2: Yeah, RIP Chance the Snapper. <laughs>
1: he's not dead. He just got taken away.
2: Yeah, he is. He's gone now, right?
1: But, yeah, but he's not dead. They said they were not going to euthanize him. They said they were going to send him outside the city where he could roam free.
2: Oh, well, that's that's nice.
1: Something like that. Can we? Can I give you my last part?
2: All right, last one. Okay, are you ready? Absolutely
1: antibiotics, comma, probiotics, comma, and the common cold. It's fake. Don't fall for it. It's, it's totally it's fake. I've made shit. it up. Um, I'm not sure how many. I'm going to say that you got about half of them right.
2: Yeah, I'd, I'd give my a strong, a, a strong 50%. strong
1: 50%. <laughs> You're listening to the Grok Science Show with me, Becca Satterwhite, and my guest...
2: Uh, Nick Varley. Hey, everyone.
1: That's him. Hey, Nick, it's time for What's Up with Wasps.
2: I This is my favorite segment on Groks. Oh, really? Every week.
1: You want to know wasps up, Nick?
2: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Please tell me, tell me wasps up.
1: This is news to me. Wasps have an incredible sense of smell. Really? Did you know that? No. This information comes to us from a New York Times article that I don't have the title for. And the original 1988 discovery paper "Host detection by chemically mediated associative learning in a parasitic wasp by authors W.J. Lewis and J.H. Tumlinson, published in the journal Nature. In 1988, when I was but five years old, this discovery dates back to 1988. What they demonstrated in the paper is that the associative learning process used by wasps rivals that of dogs. Did you know that wasps can sniff out drugs, explosives, and even cadavers?
2: No. No. Is this still, is this still the real or fake thing? No. Where you're going to pull the rug out? Uh
1: I could. I could have made this whole thing up, but that <laughs> would be so, I don't know, difficult. So wasps are naturally very, very chemosensitive, which means they can detect a lot of chemicals in their environment. You can think of it as smelling. It's not quite the same chemosensitive smelling. So they're already super sensitive. They're good at doing this, and they can be trained to perform certain behaviors when they sense a certain chemical using positive reinforcement with sugar water, Ooh, which is no their way. food. Mm-hmm, totally. Totally. They used flight tunnel studies. They had a flight tunnel with a wasp at one end and some poop on the other, and they showed that the associative learning occurs during encounters with host feces. When female wasps touch the feces with their antenna, they learn to recognize and subsequently fly to various volatile odors, even novel and otherwise unattractive odors like vanilla that were associated with the feces. So basically, just by physically encountering a stimulus one time, they can find it again with their sense memory that they've created. Um, So it's a sort of chemical memory, which the authors call a host-specific recognition cue. And the association of tracking cues with host byproducts, like if you could track your host by its poo smells, without the need for direct contact with the host, is a valuable adaptation for locating cryptic and evasive
2: hosts. Right. Are we talking uh, hosts like mammals, other bugs,
1: something in between? I think other bugs. In general is what they parasitize
2: huh that's that's bonkers it's out of this world
1: and i guess the special part of this story is that they were able to find the cues later the same chemical cues without the physical feces being present And they believe that this was the first demonstration of associative learning in insects where encounter with the target organism is not involved. So if we fast forward to the 2000s, this discovery was made by a group back in the 80s. And, oh, my gosh, wasps have an incredible ability to learn smells. The same group is still working, and they have new research that shows that wasps can actually learn chemical stimuli of things that were not originally in their environment. Like, for example, incendiary devices And chemicals typically used in arson. So years later, the same researchers found that wasps can basically detect any smell that they have given them. And they have devised a way of detecting the change in behavior of the wasps that will tell us when they detect an odor. Pavlov's dog, they said, when you ring a bell would always salivate. Wasps don't salivate, but they do some specific behaviors. (laughs) When wasps have been trained to associate a particular odor with a reward which is a big drink of sugar water that's their reward. They get excited when they smell it and they start moving around really quickly, "quote unquote
2: like pigs to a trough." Boy, that's what what an image.
1: I'm just so excited to smell this poo smell. Or whatever. So they developed a prototype that is a little box equipped with a fan that pulls air into it. And they insert a cartridge containing five wasps into the device. And then a camera tracks the wasps' movement. And the images are fed directly into a software program that measures food-searching behavior. And it tells us within about 20 seconds that they detected the odor. So that's what's up with wasps this week. That's
2: what's up with wasps.
1: Nick Varley was born ready to read you this PSA.
2: It might be the door alarm or the new safety drain covers, the pool fencing, even the swim lessons. But the fact is, you never know which safety step will save a life until it does. Adding multiple safety steps to your safe pool practices can mean the difference between a close call and a call to 911. Simple steps save lives. To learn some new ones, visit poolsafety.gov. And why not let's keep it going with another one? Want to have some fun with history? Log on to americaslibrary.gov. It's history the way kids like it. Cool films, pictures, startling facts, all just a click away from your home, school, or local library. americaslibrary.gov. Log on, play around, learn something.
1: Listening to the Grok Science Show with me, Becca Satterwhite, and my guest,
2: Uh, Nick Varley. Hey, everyone.
1: Nick, it's time for a science story.
2: Lay it on me, Rebecca.
1: Giant gems come from Earth's inner iron. This information. (laughs) (laughs) It is true. Go on. (laughs) This information comes to us from a 2016 science paper titled Large Gem Diamonds from Metallic Liquid in Earth's Deep Mantle by authors Evan Smith et al. Shout out to my dear friend Natasha, who is owed this story and cares a lot about gemology. <laughs> Massive diamonds, Nick. They're rare, they're expensive, and they're captivating. Large, exceptional gem diamonds, like the three I'm about to tell you about Appear to be distinctive, not only in their size but also in their origin. Did you know there are massive, famous diamonds?
2: No, I I thought the Hope Diamond was Heard the biggest of it. one. Yeah. yeah, is this one of the? uh Is that an example? Not
1: even. Oh, These boy. are crazy. So we got the constellation. This is the current world's most expensive diamond. It was discovered in Botswana in 2015. Guess the number of carrots. Guess the order of magnitude. Thank you for Googling this and go ahead. It
2: was just images. I have... <laughs> I'm, sure. I'm not. I'm Looks not like cheating. a diamond, clear. Uh, Miss Satterwhite.
1: So, like God, a I carrot on anything. a ring, I think like a lot of carrots, like a, for yeah, a, a so wedding I'd say ring. Yeah,
2: like a thousand carrots. That's
1: something. a very good guess. So, the constellation is actually 813 carrots, oh, wow. which is massive, and it sold for $63 million. Uh, $63 million? Recently. Good lord. Seems to have been discovered in a private mine in Botswana. You know, not much more to say about it other than it's a big, massive diamond that is extant in the world. The Cullinan was discovered in South Africa in 1905, so a long, long time ago. This was a supermassive diamond that produced, instead of one big diamond, they were able to get out nine Major diamonds from this one—they couldn't get the whole thing out. They broke it into nine bits. Good lord! Hope that makes sense. And then <laughs> each of the nine major stones were about a thousand carats.
2: That seems like a waste of. It's a real shame they couldn't get in total the, the big diamond out.
1: It a nine thousand carat diamond. I didn't know that they existed. I had never heard of a massive diamond. It's still like the thousand carats could probably hold in your fist.
2: Yeah, actually, I'm looking. I'm looking at the other one, mm-hmm. uh, and it's about the size of a baseball, give or take.
1: But I'll be honest, I don't know anything about the extraction process. The Cullinan came from a South African mine. It does have its own Wikipedia page, and it's much disputed. It's broken. There's like the Cullinan 1, the Cullinan 2. It's famous, famous diamonds for rich people, I suppose. The third famous diamond is the Koh-I-N-O-O-R. I I think that's how you pronounce it. It's K-O-H-I-N-O-O-R. This one originated in India, probably in the early 1800s. It does also have its own Wikipedia page. The koh noor is Hindi-Urdu. I Urdu. Like that
2: that's the standard for diamond renown.
1: Are you not impressed?
2: I, I am. I, I meant no disrespect on these great diamonds.
1: I do. Uh, I'm like, the Constellation, you're not even interesting enough to have a Wikipedia page. And you want to call yourself... Some great like
2: a, a big deal diamond.
1: A big deal diamond. Who do you think you are? Like a diamond sea lister. <laughs> exactly. So Kohi Noor is Hindi Urdu for Mountain of Light. It's 106 carats. It was once the world's largest diamond. Here's the deal. It's part of the British Crown jewels, which makes me nervous. It was ceded to Queen Victoria after the British annexation of the Punjab in 1849. And then later, it was kind of disrespected by Prince Albert, who had it recut into something more modern to make it more pretty for British people, when it seems to me he should have been more concerned with doing something useful with it or returning it to India, at least. So there's your mini gemology lesson. In this paper, Smith et al. probed mineral composition in diamonds of this type, So first they had to find diamonds like this to work with. They're Mm -hmm. a special kind. They identified a genetically distinct diamond population. Uh, Have you thought a lot about diamond populations?
2: No. Or uh, (laughs) the diamond DNA, diamond genome, that's all news to me.
1: I don't know if they mean genetically in the sense of DNA or if it's it's some metaphor, but certainly distinct at their composition. They're compositionally distinct, I suppose. So... This special population of diamonds they worked with contains samples from metal-saturated regions of Earth's mantle. Quick reminder, I had to look this up. The (laughs) outer core of the Earth is liquid iron. Then heading outward comes the mantle and then the crust, which is where we are. So I kind of forgot that there's like a solid metal core and then there's an outer core that's liquid iron. What they found in this paper is that these special diamonds are full of iron that came from the inner inner core. So the diamonds from the special population are called clipper diamonds, which is a fancy anagram. And they're the same type as these massive famous gemstones. They're large diamonds and they contain abundant slivers of iron metal surrounded by reducing gases. This suggests that they grew from liquid metal in Earth's mantle. The metal dominated mineral assemblages. And reduced volatiles in large gem diamonds indicate formation under metal-saturated conditions. There's so much metal happening. The (laughs) presence of metal has implications for seismic velocity, thermal and electrical conductivity, and volatile element cycling in Earth's deep mantle. And Nick, just for fun, I pulled an excerpt from a publication titled, Using Poetry to Teach About Minerals in Earth Science Class. By authors Rule Carnicelli, and Kane, and this was published in the Journal of Geoscience Education <laughs> in 2004. This is only part of the poem. Boy, so
2: they're just—they're publishing anything these days.
1: Well, <laughs> uh, yes, and I, I think you should read this excerpt. Everybody, sit back and relax yeah, and please, listen uh, to the dulcet don't, tones.
2: Don't touch that dial, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, poem's called Diamond. A diamond is dazzling, dizzyingly bright, an adamantine crystal glittering with light, a million mirrors reflecting a star, a fourth of July sparkler in a faceted jar. Oh Rebecca, this is this is so cool. It's <laughs> From very the cool. depths of the mantle a diamond is born intense heat and pressure make kimberlite form. Within it are crystals, octahedral in kind, rough uncut diamonds for the lucky to find. Inside carbon atoms bond closely together. I wonder if this ever made a kid a geophysicist. Or,
1: or just learn any of these words. They threw octahedral in there like
2: That's true. Well it's not it's not over yet. Bond closely together, holding so tightly they stay locked forever. Impenetrable surface the hardest on earth, keeping a polish to show off its worth, refracting a rainbow of fine flashing fire, promising passion and answering desire. A diamond means permanence lasting through time, an eternal Torch for two lives that entwine. Wow, that's nice. Throwing the little marriage
1: get it? <laughs> yep. marriage
2: thing in at the end.
1: It went on for another at least ten lines, twelve lines. Good lord. Yeah, I thought that was good. I feel like you get the idea. And yeah. if you wanted to, you could write your own gym poetry to remember things about rocks.
2: If you send it to fifty seven oh six South University Avenue, address it, W H P K rock science show. Rebecca will read it out on the next program.
1: Yep, I promise. You're still listening to the Grok Science Show. Thank you for listening. I have a story about how junk food can make you pick something healthier. All right. That is the title of the summary article from which I got this information. It was posted by Allison Jones Duel on Science daily but there's no credited author the original discovery paper is titled indulgent foods can paradoxically promote disciplined dietary choices and that's by authors nicole sullivan et al and published in the journal psychological science in 2019 nick whether we pick healthy or indulgent (laughs) foods may depend on what other foods sit nearby on the grocery shelf Paradoxically, the nearby presence of an indulgent treat can cause more people to opt for a healthy food, says study co-author Scott Hudel, professor of psychology and neuroscience at Duke. When people choose foods, they don't simply reach into their memory and pick the most preferred food. Instead, how much we prefer something actually depends on what other options are available. We've heard a lot of stories regarding human preference and how it changes in context. Recently on the Grox show, we discussed a study about how the pacing of music in restaurants affects the quality of the meal and actually how long you spend in the restaurant. And before that, a long time ago, oh, wow. we discussed how the goodness of certain courses in a meal can affect people's perception of other courses. In today's story, we learned about how context can affect our food choices. Guess what their population size is? Their study size.
2: Their study size. Uh, less than 100. Less than 100. Let's say 30 test subjects.
1: So a few more than that. We got about 80. About 80. Yes. They had to... Is that
2: good or not it, enough?
1: It's human, so I have no way of knowing. I feel like that's a pretty good turnout. And they had to ask the participants to fast for four hours before they went mm-hmm. and turned up for the study. Right, so you right, got to right. get 80 people who actually didn't eat for four hours, which is kind of asking a lot. And then... The study participants chose between indulgent foods, which are tasty, but not healthy, and disciplined foods, which are healthy, but not tasty. Listen to this shit. When given a simple one-to-one choice, say between canned salmon and Oreo cookies, plain canned salmon or Oreo cookies, nearly all subjects preferred the indulgent snack. Weird, right?
2: Canned salmon over Oreo. I mean, mm-hmm. Oreos over canned salmon. Yeah. If you haven't eaten for four hours, mm-hmm. I, I plain
1: think, canned salmon.
2: I guess that is that is pretty disgusting.
1: Um, well, I mean, I'm not calling you disgusting. You think you would choose the salmon? I think I would go for the salmon because it would make you kind of sick to eat something sweet on an empty stomach. Uh, yeah,
2: because if you're already hungry, you know, mm-hmm. you kind of want something with a with some protein, to a it. protein In punch. My view, yeah, absolutely, and fish. I don't know. I, I have a I, I don't need a lot of fish. I'd be grateful for the opportunity for a scientist to buy me a canned salmon, a, a piece of fish. Well, it's
1: not a piece of fish, man.
2: I guess it's like a fish. It's paste. like tuna.
1: No, no. It's like it's like shredded. Like tuna. Right, right, right. Have you ever had canned tuna?
2: Only in like a casserole. A setting. casserole.
1: Where did you grow up? Virginia. Tuna casserole is so mid is reading very Midwest to me. But what do I know?
2: What can I say? My mother. It uh, was suburban, right? She mastered the cuisines of many regions. Wait,
1: have you never had tuna salad?
2: I like a tuna salad sandwich.
1: Yeah. So, okay, Rebecca, that's I didn't, I didn't
2: come on the show to be interrogated <laughs> about my, my tuna. I've got way too many habits. questions
1: and I'm supposed to be telling you the story. Okay, so people chose the Oreos. Nick would have chosen the canned salmon, whatever. Next, the researchers took the same options and paired each with an indulgent food. For instance, participants saw salmon with Oreos and then Snickers with Oreos. Okay? So participants were told that they had a 50% chance of getting either item in a pair. So they have four choices, and they're going to get one of them. One of the four? Anyway, when presented with this choice, participants were twice as likely to choose the pair that included a healthy option, such as salmon and Oreos. So what's happening? (laughs) (laughs) These results were replicated across two independent samples, receiving distinct goal primes so they weren't just produced by oreos or snickers or whatever no matter what the prompt was they found the same results and they have a possible explanation that involves attention the healthy item was the different item among the choices so they would give you like three indulgent items that were the Mm same um and then some other choice one of these is not like the other the researchers tracked subjects eye movements and found that subjects spent more time looking at healthy choices when indulgent treats surrounded them but not when they were alone so if,
2: stare in disbelief. <laughs>
1: if you put the canned the- salmon among candy bars, they're going to look at that canned salmon because it's okay. the thing that's different. And if you see one healthy food and one unhealthy food, most people will choose the unhealthy food. But if you add more unhealthy foods, it seems suddenly the healthy food stands out, which means that adding more unhealthy items to your choices can actually encourage you to make healthier choices. Mm, no which way. is very counterintuitive. You need to have kind of a lot of bad options to choose a good one.
2: Right, right, right.
1: Then they have some applications, in this case for grocery stores, especially in food deserts, where adding small produce section doesn't actually work to encourage people to buy more produce. They think that might be because of the way things are displayed. So right now, food items are very segregated. Here's the produce, here are the candy bars. Yet maybe if we put something healthy in the middle of the snack food section, perhaps that might encourage people to choose it. And that's my story. Fascinating stuff. Welcome back to the Grok Science Show with me, Becca Satterwhite, and my friend... Nick Varley. That's him. Hey. Hey. Nick. <sighs> Nick. Nick.
2: I'm getting dragged left and right by Rebecca on the Grok Science Show.
1: <laughs> we got Apple problems.
2: We got Apple problems? We got Apple
1: problems. Citation is from a paper titled Potential Role of Weather, Soil, and Plant Microbial Communities in Rapid Decline of Apple Trees by authors Jagpreet Singh et al., and that was published in the journal Plus One in March mm. of this year. Nick, there's been an unusual decline and collapse of young established trees known as rapid apple decline, or RAD. Oh, jeez. RAD has become a major concern for apple growers, particularly in the northeastern United States. This decline is characterized by stunted growth, pale yellow to reddish leaves, which does not sound green at all, and tree collapse within (laughs) weeks after onset of symptoms. Yeah, that's a... Sounds pretty nasty. Yeah, whoa. (laughs) No common root rot pathogens or nutrient deficiency has been associated with rad. After originating in one point of an orchard, the disorder seems to spread to adjacent trees. Symptomatic trees are usually removed from orchards due to poor productivity. However, if they're left in the orchard, the symptoms will spread throughout the tree within a single year and ultimately lead to tree death. And the causative agent is still unknown. So the group in today's study studied (laughs) declining honeycrisp apple trees, my personal favorite apple. Do you have a favorite apple?
2: I'm a Granny Smith fella, I think.
1: Okay. Those are pretty good.
2: I wonder if it's affecting Granny Smith the same (laughs) way.
1: They studied declining Honeycrisp apple trees to identify potential involvement of abiotic and biotic stresses. Do you remember what those words mean?
2: I believe (laughs) biotic is is living and moving around. Much
1: like we are. Abiotic
2: is the rocks and the, 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 the... Yeah, it's all the 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 non-living stuff
1: in the environment. Also includes uh, soil nutrient content, sugars and things that you can eat but that are not living, things like pH. So it's like the external environment. It's exactly what you said. Um, (laughs) To profile... You nailed it! Why are you laughing? It's so funny when Nick gets something correct. To profile bacterial and fungal communities in the soil and plant material, they sequence genetic marker genes that allow species-level indication of the microbes... They also tested for the presence of six viruses in their trees. So they were looking at fungus they were looking at bacteria. They're looking at viruses. And they found that none of them linked disease causality. So none of the microbes were contributing to this disease. They did find microbes. They found some that were enriched. So some that looked like they might be causing things. But then mm-hmm. it turned out they were not enriched in um, sick plants versus not sick plants. So interestingly... They found similar physical and nutritional soil composition from both symptomatic and asymptomatic trees. So that rules out the role of nutritional stress. They found necrotic lesions, which are part of the tree that is rotting. Necrotic lesions, like a part that's being eaten away and would decay symptoms which is a necrotic lesion, Mm -hmm. dispersing from the bark or vascular cambium towards the heartwood, so moving up from the roots and toward the middle of the tree. These nasty necrotic lesions were observed primarily below the graft union of declining apple trees, suggesting that the rootstock is the originating point. They saw a pattern of death spreading (laughs) upwards from the the roots, and they realized that's where the disease was coming from. So they speculate that differences in abiotic factors, such as moisture levels... In declining trees, in combination with extreme weather profiles, which are increasing these days and had been during the period of the study, they had extreme drought and the opposite of drought periods. So they think that it's really the weather that's causing the rad.
2: Jeez. Well, what's what's the prognosis for America's apples? It, you know, all downhill from here. Is there hope on the horizon?
1: It's kind of interesting because this was really a negative result. We couldn't find a microbial cause. They couldn't find really a specific abiotic cause. It just seemed like bad weather for bad weather for apples. Jeez,
2: I mean, is is that a disease? You know, if a bunch of apple trees are having a
1: are reacting, poorly. yeah, reacting to, to they bad could just weather. be basically going extinct uh, in the bad weather, which is what but but we're artificially selecting and not really letting them go extinct. Fair. So I don't know what the answer is. Unfortunately, it's kind of weird that you would have a disease that looks like it's being caused by a bacteria that's spread like that, and then it isn't. So it's possible that they just didn't find the right microbe.
2: Oh, that's fair. Maybe there's another paper on the horizon.
1: I'm sure there is, because this doesn't tell you what to do. (laughs) This doesn't tell you how to handle rapid apple decline. It also doesn't look at any variations in the host, so it doesn't say if it differentially affects different apples. Mm -hmm. So it may be just that we have some varieties that are not doing well in the current climate and with all the current climate changes that are just going to get more and more intense I don't really know but i hope we figure it out because i do really like honey crisp apples
2: yeah i'd be i'd be sad to see him go
0: she knows where she's coming from a nice little punk rock girl she's so lonely and lovely and mad at her Her gold dreads and black roots and tattoo of God She's the next best thing to Athena.
1: ready for one more science story
2: yes
1: the title of this one that i made up is wild fish tell each other what's up the citation for the story is a science daily summary article with no credited author titled fish under threat release chemicals to warn others of danger based on the original discovery paper titled a novel alarm system in aquatic prey familiar minnows coordinate group defenses against predators through chemical disturbance cues by authors Kevin Baros novak et al., and published in the Journal of Animal Ecology in the year of our Lord, 2019. <laughs> so, Nick. Research by the University of Saskatchewan has found that wild fish release chemicals called disturbance cues to signal to other fish about nearby dangers, such as predators. Disturbance cues are voluntarily released by prey after being chased, startled or stressed by predators. I can think of one human example, and that would be flop sweat. It's basically a human disturbance cue. uh... So they found that fish signaled most when in the presence of familiar fish and signaled far less or not at all when in the presence of strangers or if the fish were on their own. So it's definitely something they're doing in a social situation to reach each other and communicate. The signals provoked a fright response in fish they knew. So if a fish that you know makes a signal, then you respond. But if it's a fish you don't know, you don't really respond. The fright response includes freezing or the opposite of freezing, dashing around and then shoaling tightly together. Fish use this behavior to defend themselves against predators, which makes sense. They kind of freak out, swim around, and then right, right, come right. back together as a school. When minnows were present alongside familiar minnows, they were much more likely to produce signals that initiated close grouping of nearby fish, a strategy used to avoid being eaten by predators. One of the main constituents of the signal is guess what?
2: I couldn't, I couldn't tell you...
1: What's a thing that you excrete?
2: <laughs> a thing that I excrete? Yeah, uh, and especially
1: an... probably. It's one of the things that if you get fight or flighted.
2: That's an awfully personal question. Yeah, I think, uh, you, know what I
1: think you know what I'm getting at. Uh, Maybe. Adrenaline? Yes, that's in your body, but like excrete, leave the behind. Sweat? Like that? Liquid. Urea? That's the one. Oh, um, there it is. not even kidding. That is the signal that is the main constituents of fish urine is urea. And that is the signal. Oh, wow. So that's the main chemical cue that's happening. We've talked a lot about chemical cues today. And it's exciting to discover a new signaling pathway in animals, the researchers say. They found that fish are able to manipulate the behavior of other individuals nearby by issuing a signal, a signal of urea. (laughs) For listening to the Grox Science Show with me, Becca Satterwhite. Please rate, review, and subscribe to the Grox Science Show on Apple Podcasts. Note that we are the UChicago branch of a larger Grox Network. Our show is the one with the yellow petri dish and all the fungi and bacteria on it. All episodes are available on InternetArchive.org. Just search for Grox W H P K or visit tinyurl.com slash Grox, W-H-P-K. Email me your events for promotion or send me your science story to satterwhite at uchicago.edu and check out our next show in two weeks. Bye!